Escape Pod, 397. May 23rd, 2013. A Gone for Dinosaur. By El Sprague de Camp. Welcome to Escape Pod, the weekly science fiction podcast sent to you from a satellite that was parked above the North Pole in 1958 by Forces Unknown. This week's story comes to us from Elsprog de Camp, who, aside from having one of the best names I have ever heard, had quite a storied life. He served as a researcher at the Philadelphia Naval Yard, along with Asimov and Heinlein, and eventually rose to the rank of Lieutenant Commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve. And yes, I, did, I pronounce it as Lieutenant because I date an American. Hi, honey. He was a member of the Trapdoor Spiders, an all-male literary and dining club in New York, which Asimov based his characters The Black Widowers on. DeCamp himself, by the way, was the model for the character Jeffrey Avalon. He was also a founding member of the Swordsman and Sorcerers Guild of America, a loosely knit group of heroic fantasy writers led by Lynn Carter. He wrote science fiction, fantasy, historical fiction, and non-fiction, and he was responsible, at least in part, for the revival of Robert E. Howard's Conan. He was also known for being an unflinching biographer of both Howard and Lovecraft, whose approach was regularly criticised for skewing his work to match the ideas he already had about Howard in particular. He's an odd guy, but he's an interesting guy, and he's worth tracking down the work of. Your narrator this week is Ayub Koti a fantastic voice actor who you may have heard on the audio drama H.G. World. He's also an author in his own right, a general renaissance man and an all-around good egg. Thanks for stepping up on this one, Ayub. We appreciate it. So, check your weapons, check your gear, and pack out. It's time to go big game hunting. It's time for story time. No, I'm sorry, Mr. Seligman, but I can't take you hunting late Mesozoic dinosaur. Yes, I know what the advertisement says. Why not? How much do you weigh? 130? Let's see. That's under 10 stone, which is my lower limit. I could take you to any other period, you know. I'll take you to any period in the Cenozoic. I'll get you a shot at Intelodont or a Uinthia. They've got fine heads. I'll even stretch a point and take you to the Pleistocene, where you can try for one of the mammoths or a mastodon. I'll take you back to the Triassic, where you can shoot one of the smaller ancestral dinosaurs. But I will jolly well not take you to the Jurassic or Cretaceous. You're just too small. What's your size got to do with it? Look here, old boy. What did you think you were going to shoot your dinosaur with? Oh, you hadn't thought, eh? Well, sit there a minute. Here you are, my own private gun for that work, a Continental 600. Does look like a shotgun, doesn't it? But it's rifled, as you can see by looking through the barrels. Shoots a pair of 600 Nitro Express cartridges the size of bananas. Weighs 14.5 pounds and has a muzzle energy of over 7,000 foot-pounds. Costs $1,450. Lot of money for a gun, what? I have some spares I rent to the Sahibs, designed for knocking down elephant. Not just wounding them, knocking them base over apex. That's why they don't make guns like this in America. I suppose they will if hunting parties keep going back in time. 
Now, I've been guiding hunting parties for twenty years, guided them in Africa until the game gave out there except on the preserves, and all that time I've never known a man your size who could handle the six naught naught. It knocks them over, and even when they stay on their feet, they get so scared of the bloody cannon after a few shots that they flinch. They find the gun too heavy to drag around rough Mesozoic country. Where's them out? It's true that lots of people have killed elephant with lighter guns. The 500, 475, the 465 doubles, for instance. Or even the 375 Magnum repeaters. The difference is, with the 375, you have to hit something vital, preferably the heart, and can't depend on simple shock power. An elephant weighs, let's see, four to six tons? You're proposing to shoot reptiles weighing two or three times as much as an elephant and with much greater tenacity of life. That's why the syndicate decided to take no more people dinosaur hunting unless they could handle the 600. We learned the hard way, as you Americans say. There were some unfortunate incidents. I'll tell you, Mr. Seligman, it's after 1700. Time I closed the office. Why don't we stop at the bar on our way out while I tell you the story? It was about the Rajas and my fifth safari into time. The Raja? Oh, he's the Ayah, half of Rivers and Ayah. I call him the Raja because he's the hereditary monarch of Janpur. Means nothing nowadays, of course. Knew him in India and ran into him in New York running the Indian Tourist Agency. That dark chap in the photograph on my office wall, the one with his foot on the dead saber-tooth. Well, the Raja was fed up with handing out brochures about the Taj Mahal and wanted to do a bit of hunting again. I was at loose ends when we heard of Professor Proteska's time machine at Washington University. Where's the Raja now? Out on safari in the early Oligocene, after Titanothea, while I run the office. We take turnabout, but the first few times we went out together. Anyway, we caught the next plane to St. Louis. Through our mortification, we found we weren't the first. Lord, no. There were other hunting guys and no end of scientists, each with his own idea of the right way to use the machine. You scraped off the historians and archaeologists right at the start. Seems the ready machine won't work for periods more recent than a 100,000 years ago. It works from there up to about a billion years. Why? Oh, I'm no four-dimensional thinker, but as I understand it, if people could go back to a more recent time, their actions would affect our own history. Which would be a paradox or contradiction of facts. Can't have that in a well-run universe, you know. About before 100,000 BC, more or less, the actions of the expeditions are lost in the stream of time before human history begins. At that, once a stretch of past time has been used, say the month of January, 1 million BC, you can't use that stretch over again by sending another party into it. Paradoxes again. The professor isn't worried, though. With a billion years to exploit, he won't soon run out of eras. Another limitation of the machine is the matter of size. For technical reasons, Prochaska had to build the transition chamber just big enough to hold four men, with their personal gear and the chamber walla. Larger parties have to be sent through in relays. That means, you see, it's not practical to take jeeps, launches, aircraft and other powered vehicles. On the other hand, since you're going to periods without human beings, there's no whistling up a hundred native bearers to trot along with your gear on their heads. So we usually take a train of asses, burrows, they call them here. Most periods have enough natural forage so you can get where you want to go. As I say, everybody has his own idea for using a machine. Scientists looked down their noses at us hunters and said it would be a crime to waste the machine's time pandering to our sadistic amusements. We brought up another angle. The machine cost a cool 30 million. I understand this came from the Rockefeller board and such people, but that accounted for the original cost only, not the cost of operation. 
and the thing uses fantastic amounts of power. Most of the scientists' projects, well, worthy enough, will run on a shoestring, financially speaking. Now, we guys cater to people with money, a species with which America seems well-stocked. No offense, old boy. Most of these could afford a substantial fee for passing through the machine into the past. Thus, we could help finance the operation of the machine for scientific purposes, provided we got a fair share of its time. In the end, the guides formed a syndicate of eight members, one member being the partnership of Rivers and IR, to apportion the machine's time. We had rushed business from the start. Our wives, the Rajas and mine, raised hell with us for a while. They hoped that when the big game gave out in our own era, they'd never have to share us with lions and things again. But you know how women are. Hunting's not really dangerous if you keep your head and take precautions. On the fifth expedition, we had two sahibs to wet nurse, both Americans in their thirties, both physically sound and both solvent. Otherwise, they were as different as different can be. Courtney James was what you chaps call a playboy, a rich young man from New York who'd always had his own way and didn't see why that agreeable condition shouldn't continue. A big bloke, almost as big as I am, handsome, in a florid way, but beginning to run to fat. He was on his fourth wife, and when he showed up at the office with a blonde twist with model written all over her, I assumed that this was the fourth Mrs. James. Miss Bartram, she corrected me with an embarrassed giggle. She's not my wife, James explained. My wife is in Mexico, I think, getting a divorce. But Bunny here would like to go along. Sorry, I said. We don't take ladies, at least not to the late Mesozoic. This wasn't strictly true, but I felt we were running enough risks going after a little-known fauna without dragging in people's domestic entanglements. Nothing against sex, you understand. Marvellous institution and all that. But not where it interferes with my living. "'How nonsense,' said James. "'If she wants to go, she'll go. "'She skis and flies my airplane. "'So why shouldn't she against the firm's policy?' I said. "'She can keep out of the way when we run up against the dangerous ones,' he said. "'Nope. Sorry.' "'Damn it,' said he, getting red. "'After all, I'm paying you a goodly sum, "'and I'm entitled to take whoever I please.' "'You can't hire me to do anything against my best judgment,' I said. "'If that's how you feel, get another guide.' "'All right, I will,' he said. "'I'll tell all my friends you're a goddamn... "'Well, he said a lot of things I won't repeat. "'Until I told him to get out of the office, or I'd throw him out. "'I was sitting in the office and thinking sadly "'of all that lovely money James would have paid me "'if I hadn't been so stiff-necked "'when in came my other lamb, one August Holtzinger. "'This was a little slim, pale chap with glasses, polite and formal. "'Holtzinger sat on the edge of his chair and said, "'Uh, Mr. Rivers, I... Don't want you to think I'm here under false pretenses. I'm really not much of an outdoorsman, and I'd probably be scared to death when I see a real dinosaur. But I'm determined to hang a dinosaur head over my fireplace or die in the attempt. Most of us are frightened at first, I soothed him. Though it doesn't do to show it. And little by little, I got the story out of him. While James had always been wallowing in the stuff, Holtzinger was a local product who'd only lately come into the real thing. He had a little business here in St. Louis and just about made ends meet when an uncle cashed in his chips somewhere and left a little orgy in a pile. Now, Holtzinger had acquired a fiancé and was building a big house. When it was finished, they'd be married and move into it. And one furnishing he demanded was a ceratopsian head over the fireplace. Those are the ones with the big horned heads with a parrot beak and a frill over the neck, you know. 
You have to think twice about collecting them, because if you put a seven-foot triceratops head into a small living room, there's apt to be no room left for anything else. We were talking about this when in came a girl, a small girl in her twenties, quite ordinary-looking and crying. Augie, she cried, you can't, you mustn't, you'll be killed. She grabbed him round the knees and said to me, Mr. Riffers, you mustn't take him, he's all I've got, he'll never stand the hardships. My dear young lady, I said, I should hate to cause you distress, but it's up to Mr. Holtzinger to decide whether he wishes to retain my services. It's no use, Claire, said Holtzinger. I'm going through and I'll probably hate every minute of it. What's that, old boy? I said. If you hate it, why go? Did you lose a bet or something? No, said Holtzinger. It's this way. Uh, I'm a completely undistinguished kind of guy. I'm not brilliant or big or strong or handsome. I'm just an ordinary Midwestern small businessman. You never even notice me at rotary luncheons. I fit in so perfectly. That doesn't say I'm satisfied. I've always hankered to go to far places and do big things. I'd love to be a glamorous, adventurous sort of guy like you, Mr. Rivers. Oh, come, I said. Professional hunting may seem glamorous to you, but to me it's just a living. He shook his head. Nope. You know what I mean. Well, now I've got this legacy. I could settle down and play bridge and golf the rest of my life and try to act like I wasn't bored but I'm determined to do something with some colour in it, once at least. Since there's no more real big-game hunting in the present, I'm going to shoot a dinosaur and hang his head over my mantle if it's the last thing I do. I will never be happy otherwise. Well, Holtzinger and his girl argued, but she wouldn't give in. She made me swear to take the best care of her orgie and departed sniffling. When Holtzinger has left, who should come in but my vile-tempered friend Courtney James? He apologized for insulting me, though you could hardly say he groveled. I don't really have a temper, he said, except when people won't cooperate with me. Then I sometimes get mad, but so long as they're cooperative, I'm not hard to get along with. I knew that by cooperate, he meant do whatever Courtney James wanted. But I didn't press the point. What about Miss Bartram, I asked. We had a row, he said. I'm through with women, so if there's no hard feelings, let's go on from where we left off. Very well, I said, business being business. The Raja and I decided to make it a joint safari to eight five million years ago. The early Upper Cretaceous, or the Middle Cretaceous as some American geologists call it. It's about the best period for dinosaur in Missouri. You'll find some individual species a little larger in the late Upper Cretaceous, but the period we were going to gives a wider variety. Now, as to our equipment, the Raja and I each had a Continental 600 like the one I showed you and a few smaller guns. At this time, we hadn't worked up much capital and had no spare 600s to rent. August Holtzinger said he would rent a gun as he expected this to be his only safari, and there's no point in spending over $1,000 for a gun you'll shoot only a few times. But since we had no spare 600s, his choice lay between buying one of those and renting one of our smaller pieces. We drove into the country and set up a target and let him try the 600. Holtzinger heaved up the gun and let fly. He missed completely, and the kick knocked him flat on his back. He got up looking paler than ever and handed me back the gun, saying, uh, I think I'd better try something smaller. When his shoulder stopped hurting, I tried him out with the smaller rifles. He took a fancy to my Winchester 70, chambered for the three seventy five Magnum cartridge. 
is an excellent all-round gun, perfect for the big cats and bears, but a little light for elephant and definitely light for dinosaur. I should never have given in, but I was in a hurry and it might have taken months to have a new 600 made to order for him. James already had a gun, a Holland and Holland 500 Double Express, which is almost in a class with a 600. Both sahibs had done a bit of shooting, so I didn't worry about their accuracy. Shooting dinosaur is not a matter of extreme accuracy, but of sound judgment and smooth coordination. So you shan't catch twigs in the mechanism of your gun, or fall into holes, or climb a small tree that the dinosaur can pluck you out of, or blow your guy's head off. People used to hunting mammals sometimes try to shoot a dinosaur in the brain. That's the silliest thing to do, because dinosaurs haven't got any. To be exact, they have a little lump of tissue the size of a tennis ball at the front end of their spines. And how are you going to hit that when it's embedded in a six-foot skull? The only safe rule with the dinosaur is always try for a heart shot. They have big hearts, over 100 pounds in the largest species, and a couple of 600 slugs through the heart will slow them up at least. The problem is to get the slugs through the mountain of meat around it. Well, we appeared at Prohaska's laboratory one rainy morning. James and Holtzinger, the Raja and I, our herder, Beauregard Black, three helpers, a cook, and twelve jacks. The transition chamber is a little cubbyhole the size of a small lift. My routine is for the men with the guns to go in first, just in case a hungry theropod is standing near the machine when it arrives. So the two sahibs, the Raja and I, crowded into the chamber with our guns and packs. The operator squeezed in after us, closed the door, and fiddled with his dials. He set the thing for April 24th, 85 million BC, and pressed the red button. The lights went out, leaving the chamber lit by a little battery-operated lamp. James and Holtzinger looked pretty green, but that may have been the lighting. The Raja and I had been through all this before, so the vibration and vertigo didn't bother us. The little spinning black hands of the dials slowed down and stopped. The operator looked at his ground-level gauge and turned the hand wheel that raised the chamber so it shouldn't materialize underground. Then he pressed another button and the door slid open. No matter how often I do it, I get a frightful thrill out of stepping into a bygone era. The operator had raised the chamber a foot above ground level, so I jumped down, my gun ready. The others came after. Right-ho, I said to the chamber waller, and he closed the door. Chamber disappeared, and when we looked around, there weren't any dinosaur in sight. Nothing but lizards. In this period, the chamber materializes on top of a rocky rise, from which you can see in all directions as far as the haze will let you. To the west, you see the arm of the Kansas Sea that reaches across Missouri, and the big swamp around the bayhead where the sauropods live. To the north is a low range that the Raja named the Janpur Hills, after the Indian kingdom his forebears once ruled. To the east, the land slopes up to a plateau good for ceratopsians, while to the south is flat country with more sauropod swamps and lots of ornithopod, duckbill and iguanodont. The finest thing about the Cretaceous is the climate, balmy like the South Sea Islands, but not so muggy as most Jurassic climates. It was spring with dwarf magnolias in bloom all over. The thing about this landscape is that it combines a fairly high rainfall with an open type of vegetation cover. That is, the grasses hadn't yet evolved to the point of forming solid carpets over all the open ground. So the ground is thick with laurels, sassafras, and other shrubs, with bare earth between. There are big thickets of palmettos and ferns. The trees round the hill are mostly cycads, standing singly and in copses. You'd call them palms. 
Down towards the Kansas Sea are more cycads and willows, while the uplands are covered with screwpine and gingos. Now, I'm no bloody poet. The writer writes the stuff, not me. But I can appreciate a beautiful scene. One of the two helpers had come through the machine, two of the jacks, and was pegging them out. And I was looking through the haze and sniffing the air when a gun went off behind me. Bang, bang! I whirled around, and there was Courtney James with his 500 and an ornithomime legging it for cover 50 yards away. The ornithomimes are medium-sized running dinosaurs, slender things with long necks and legs, like a cross between a lizard and an ostrich. This kind is about seven feet tall and weighs about as much as a man. The beggar had wandered out of the nearest copse, and James gave him both barrels. Missed. I was upset as trigger-happy sahibs are as much a menace to their party as theropods. I yelled, Damn it, you idiot! I thought you went to shoot without a word from me. And who the hell are you to tell me when I'll shoot my own gun, he said. We had a rare old row until Holtzinger and the Raja got us calmed down. I explained. Look here, Mr. James. I've got reasons. If you shoot off all your ammunition before the trip's over, your gun won't be available in a pinch. And it's the only one of its caliber. If you empty both barrels at an unimportant target, what would happen if a big theropod charged before you could reload? Finally, it's not sporting to shoot everything in sight just to hear the gun go off. Do you understand? Yes, I guess so, he said. The rest of the party came through the machine, and we pitched our camp a safe distance from the materialising place. Our first task was to get fresh meat. For a 21-day safari like this, we calculate our food requirements closely, so we can make out on tin stuff and concentrates, if we must. But we count on killing at least one piece of meat. When that's butchered, we go off on a short tour, stopping at four or five camping places to hunt, and arriving back at the base a few days before the chamber is due to appear. Holtzinger, as I said, wanted a ceratopsian head. Any kind. James insisted on just one head, a tyrannosaur. Then everybody would think he'd shot the most dangerous game of all time. Fact is, the tyrannosaur's overrated. He's more a carrion eater than an active predator, though he'll snap you up if he gets a chance. He's less dangerous than some of the other theropods, the flesh eaters, you know. Such as the smaller Gorgosaurus from the period we were in. But everybody's read about the tyrant lizard, and he does have the biggest head of the theropods. The one in our period isn't the rex, which is later and a bit bigger and more specialised. It's the trionychies, with the forelimbs not quite so reduced, though they're still too small for anything but picking the brute's teeth after a meal. When camp was pitched, we still had the afternoon, so the Raja and I took our sahibs on their first hunt. We had a map of the local terrain from previous trips. The Raja and I have worked out a system for dinosaur hunting. We split into two groups of two men each and walk parallel from 20 to 40 yards apart. Each group has a sahib in front and a guide following, telling him where to go. We tell the sahibs we put them in front so they'll have first shot. Well, that's true, but another reason is they're always tripping and falling with their guns cocked, and if the guide were in front, he'd get shot. The reason for two groups is that if a dinosaur starts for one, the other gets a good heart shot from the side. As we walked, there was the usual rustle of lizards scuttling out of the way, little fellows quick as a flash and coloured like all the jewels in Tiffany's, and big grey ones that hiss at you as they plod off. There were tortoises and a few little snakes, birds with beaks full of teeth flapped off squawking, and always there was that marvellous, mild, cretaceous air. Makes a chap wants to take his clothes off and dance with vine leaves in his hair, if you know what I mean. 
Harasahib soon found that the Mesozoic country is cut up into millions of nullas, gullies, you'd say. Walking is one long scramble up and down, up and down. We'd been scrambling for an hour, and the sahibs were soaked with sweat and had their tongues hanging out when the Raja whistled. He'd spotted a group of bonehead feeding on cycad shoots. These are the truodons, small ornithopods about the size of men with a bulge on top of the heads that makes them look almost intelligent. means nothing, because the bulge is solid bone. The males butt each other with those heads in fighting over the females. These chaps would drop down on all fours, munch up a shoot, then stand up and look around. They're warier than most dinosaurs, because they're the favourite food of the big theropods. People sometimes assume because dinosaurs are stupid, their senses must be dim too. But it's not so. Some, like the sauropods, are pretty dim-sensed, but most have good smell and eyesight and fair hearing. Their weakness is that having no minds, they have no memories, hence out of sight, out of mind. When a big theropod comes slavering after you, your best defense is to hide in a nullah or behind a bush. And if he can neither see you nor smell you, he'll just wander off. We skulked up behind a patch of palmetto, downwind from the bonehead. I whispered to James, You've had a shot already today. Hold your fire until Holtzinger shoots, and then shoot only if he misses or the beast is getting away wounded. Uh-huh, said James. We separated, he with Raja and Holtzinger with me. This got to be our regular arrangement. James and I got on each other's nerves, but the Raja's a friendly, sentimental sort of bloke nobody can help liking. We crawled around the palmetto patch on opposite sides, and Holtzinger got up to shoot. You don't shoot a heavy-caliber rifle prone. There's not enough give, and a kick can break your shoulder. Holtzinger sighted round the lower few fronds of palmetto. I saw his barrel wobbling and waving. Then he lowered his gun and tucked it under his arm to wipe his glasses. Off went James's gun, both barrels again. The biggest bonehead went down, rolling and thrashing. The others ran away on their hind legs in great leaps, their heads jerking and their tails sticking up behind. Put your gun on safety, I said to Holtzinger, who'd started forward. By the time we got to the bonehead, James was standing over it, breaking open his gun and blowing out the barrels. He looked as smug as if he'd come into another million and was asking the Raja to take his picture with his foot on the game. I said, I thought you were going to give Holtzinger the first shot. Hell, I waited, he said, and he took so long I thought he must have gotten buck fever. If we stood around long enough, they'd see us or smell us. There was something in what he said, but his way of saying it put my monkey up. I said, if that sort of thing happens once more, we'll leave you in camp the next time we go out. Now, gentlemen, said the Raja, after all, Reggie, these are experienced hunters. What now, said Holtzinger, haul him back ourselves or send out the men? We'll sling him under the pole, I said. He weighs under 200. The pole was a telescopic aluminium carrying pole I had in my pack, with padded yokes at the ends. I brought it because in such eras you can't count on finding saplings strong enough for proper poles on the spot. The Raja and I cleaned our burnt head to lighten him and tied him to the pole. The flies began to light on the offal by thousands. Scientists say they're not true flies in the modern sense, but they look and act like flies. There's one huge four-winged carrion fly that flies with a distinctive deep thrumming note. The rest of the afternoon we sweated under that pole, taking turnabout. The lizards scuttled out of the way and the flies buzzed around the carcass. We got to camp just before sunset, feeling as if we could eat the whole bonehead at one meal. The boys had the camp running smoothly, so we sat down for our tot of whiskey, feeling like lords of creation. 
while the cook broiled burnhead steaks. Holtzinger said, Uh, if I kill a Ceratopsian, how do we get his head back? I explained, if the ground permits, we lash it to the patent aluminium roller frame and slide it in. How much does a head like that weigh, he asked. Depends on the age and the species, I told him. Biggest weigh over a ton, but most run between 500 and 1,000 pounds. And all the ground's rough like it was today? Most of it, I said. You see, it's the combination of the open vegetation cover and the moderately high rainfall. Erosion is frightfully rapid. And who holds the head on its little sled? Everybody with a hand, I said. Big head would need every ounce of muscle in this party. On such a job, there's no place for side. Oh, said Holtzinger. I could see he was wondering whether Ceratopsian head would be worth the effort. The next couple of days we trekked round the neighbourhood, nothing worth shooting, only a herd of ornithomimes, which went bounding off like a lot of ballet dancers. Otherwise, there were only the usual lizards and pterosaurs and birds and insects. There's a big lace-winged fly that bites dinosaurs, so as you can imagine, its beak makes nothing of a human skin. One made Holtzinger leap and dance like a red Indian when it bit him through his shirt. James joshed him about it, saying, "'What's all the fuss over one little bug?' The second night, during the Raja's watch, James gave a yell that brought us all out of our tents with rifles. All that had happened was a dinosaur tick had crawled in with him and started drilling under his armpit. Since it's as big as your thumb, even when it hasn't fed, he was understandably startled. Luckily he got it before it had taken its pint of blood.' He'd pulled Holtzinger's leg pretty hard about the fly bites, and now Holtzinger repeated the words. What's all the fuss over one little bug, buddy? James squashed the tick underfoot with a grunt, not much liking to be hoist by his own what-do-you-call-it. We packed up and started on our circuit. We meant to take the sahibs first to the sauropod swamp, more to see the wildlife than to collect anything. From where the transition chamber materialises, a sauropod swamp looks like a couple of hours' walk, but it's really an all-day scramble. The first part is easy, as it's downhill and the brush isn't heavy. Then, as you get near the swamp, the cycads and willows grow so thickly that you have to worm your way among them. I led the party to a sandy ridge on the border of the swamp, as it was pretty bare of vegetation, and afforded a fine view. When we got to the ridge, the sun was about to go down. A couple of crocs slipped off into the water. The sahibs were so tired that they flopped down in the sand as if dead. The haze is thick around the swamps, so the sun was deep red and weirdly distorted by the atmospheric layers. There was a high layer of clouds reflecting the red and gold of the sun, too, so altogether it was something for the Raja to write one of his poems about. A few little pterosaurs were wheeling overhead like bats. Beauregard Black got a fire going. We'd started on our stakes, and that pagoda-shaped sun was just slipping below the horizon, and something back in the trees was making a noise like a rusty hinge when a sauropod breathed out in the water. They're the really big ones, you know. If Mother Earth were to sigh over the misdeeds of her children, it would sound like that. The Zahibs jumped up, shouting, Where is he? Where is he? I said, The black spot in the water just to the left of that point. They yammered while the sauropod filled its lungs and disappeared. Is that all? said James. Won't we see any more of him? No, I explained. They can walk perfectly well and often do for egg-laying and moving from one swamp to another, but most of the time they spend in the water, like hippopotamus. They eat 800 pounds of soft swamp plants a day, all through those little heads. 
so they wander about the bottoms of lakes and swamps chomping away and stick their heads up to breathe every quarter hour or so. It's getting dark, so this fellow will soon come out and lie down in the shallows to sleep. Can we shoot one? demanded James. I wouldn't, said I. Why not? I said there's no point to it. It's not sporting. First, they're almost invulnerable. They're even harder to hit in the brain than other dinosaurs because of the way they sway their heads about on those long necks. Their hearts are too deeply buried to reach unless you're awfully lucky. Then, if you kill one in the water, he sinks and can't be recovered. If you kill one on land, the only trophy is that little head. You can't bring the whole beast back because it weighs 30 tons or more. And we've got no use for 30 tons of meat. Holtzinger said, that museum in New York got one. Yes, said I. The American Museum of Natural History sent a party of 48 to the early Cretaceous with a 50 caliber machine gun. They killed a sauropod and spent two solid months skinning it and hacking the carcass apart and dragging it to the time machine. I know the chap in charge of that project and he still has nightmares in which he smells decomposing dinosaur. They had to kill a dozen big theropods attracted by the stench, so they had them lying around rotting too and the theropods ate three men of the party despite the big gun. Next morning, we were finishing breakfast when one of the helpers said, Look, Mr. Rivers, up there. He pointed along the shoreline. There were six big crested duckbill feeding in the shallows. They were the kind called Parasaurolophus, with the long spikes sticking out of the back of their heads and a web of skin connecting this to the back of their necks. Keep your voices down, I said. The duckbill, like any other ornithopods, are wary beasts because they have neither armor nor weapons. They feed on the margins of lakes and swamps, and when a gorgosaur rushes out of the trees, they plunge into the deep water and swim off. Then when Phobosuchus, the super crocodile, goes for them in the water, they flee to the land. A hectic sort of life, what? Holtziger said, uh, Reggie, I've been thinking over what you said about the ceratopsian heads... And if I could get one of those yonder, I'd be satisfied. It would look big enough in my house, wouldn't it? I'm sure of it, old boy, I said. Now look here. We could detour and come out on the shore near here. But we should have to plough through half a mile of muck and brush, and they'd hear us coming. Or we can creep up to the north end of this sand spit, from which it's three or four hundred yards. Long shot, but not impossible. Think you could do it? Hmm, said Holtzinger. With my scope sight in a sitting position? Okay, I'll try it. You stay here, Court, I said to James. This is Augie's head, and I don't want any argument over your having fired first. James grunted while Holtzinger clamped his scope to his rifle. We crouched our way up the spit, keeping the sand ridge between us and the duckbill. When we got to the end, there was no more cover. We crept along on hands and knees, moving slowly. If you move slowly enough, directly toward or away from a dinosaur, it probably wouldn't notice you. The duckbill continued to grub about on all fours, every few seconds rising to look round. Holtzinger eased himself into the sitting position, cocked his piece and aimed through his scope, and then... Bang, bang, went a big rifle back of the camp. Holtziger jumped. The duckbills jerked their heads up and leapt for the deep water, splashing like mad. Holtzinger fired once and missed. I took one shot at the last duckbill before it vanished too, but missed. The 600 isn't built for long ranges. Holtzinger and I started back towards the camp, for it had struck us that our party might be in theropod trouble. 
What had happened was that a big sauropod was wandering down past the camp underwater, feeding as it went. Now the water shelled about a hundred yards offshore from our spit, halfway over to the swamp on the other side. The sauropod had ambled up the slope until its body was almost all out of the water, weaving its head from side to side and looking for anything green to gobble. This is a species of Alamosaurus, which looks much like the well-known Brontosaurus, except that it's bigger. When I came in sight of the camp, the sauropod was turning around to go back the way it had come, making horrid groans. By the time we reached the camp, it had disappeared into deep water, all but its head and twenty feet of neck, which wove about for some time before they vanished into the haze. When we came up to the camp, James was arguing with the Raja. Holtzinger burst out, "'You crummy bastard! That's the second time you spoiled my shots!' "'Don't be a fool,' said James. "'I couldn't let him wander into the camp and stamp everything flat.' There was no danger of that, said the Raja. You can see the water is deep offshore, and it's just our trigger-happy Mr. James can't see any animal without shooting. I added, if you did get close, all you needed to do was throw a stick of firewood at it. They're perfectly harmless. This wasn't strictly true. When the Comte de la Troyque ran after one for a close shot, the sauropod looked back at him, gave a flick of its tail, and took off the Comte's head as neatly as if he'd been axed in a tower. But as a rule, they're inoffensive enough. How was I to know, yelled James, turning purple. You're all up against me. What the hell are we on this miserable trip for except to shoot things? Call yourselves hunters? I'm the only one who hits anything. I got pretty wrothy and said he was just an excitable young skite with more money than brains whom I should never have brought along. If that's how you feel, give me a burrow and some food and I'll go back to the base myself. I won't pollute your pure air with my presence. Don't be a bigger ass than you can help, I said. What you propose is quite impossible. Then I'll go alone. He grabbed his knapsack, thrust a couple of tins of beans and an opener into it, and started off with his rifle. Beauregard Black spoke up. Mr. Rivers, we can't let him go off like that. He'll get lost and starve or be hit by a therabod. I'll fetch him back, said the Raja, and started after the runaway. He caught up with James as the latter was disappearing into the psychads. We could see them arguing and waving their hands in the distance. After a while, they started back with arms around each other's necks like old school pals. This shows the trouble we get into if we make mistakes in planning such a do. Having once got back in time, we had to make the best of our bargain. I don't want to give the impression, however, that Courtney James was nothing but a pain in the rump. He had good points. He got over these rails quickly and next day would be as cheerful as ever. He was helpful with the general work of the camp, at least when he felt like it, and sang well and had an endless fund of dirty stories to keep us amused. We stayed two more days at that camp. We saw crocodile, the small kind, and plenty of sauropod. As many as five at once, but no more duckbill, nor any of those fifty-foot super crocodiles. So on the 1st of May we broke camp and headed north towards the Jeanpur Hills. My sahibs were beginning to harden up and were getting impatient. We'd been in the Cretaceous a week and no trophies. We saw nothing to speak of on the next leg, save a glimpse of a gorgosaur out of range and some tracks indicating a whopping big iguanodont. Twenty-five or thirty feet high. We pitched camp at the base of the hills. We'd finished off the bonehead, so the first thing was to shoot fresh meat. With an eye for trophies, too, of course. We got ready the morning of the third... I told James, see here, old boy, no more of your tricks. The Raja will tell you when to shoot. Uh-huh, I get you, he said, meek as Moses. We marched off, the four of us, into the foothills. 
there was a good chance of getting Holtzinger his ceratopsian. We'd seen a couple on the way up, but mere calves without decent horns. As it was hot and sticky, we were soon panting and sweating. We'd hiked and scrambled all morning without seeing a thing except lizards when I picked up the smell of carrion. I stopped the party and sniffed. We were in an open glade cut up by those little dry nullers. The nullers ran together into a couple of deeper gorges that cut through a slight depression choked with denser growth, cycad and screwpine. When I listened, I heard the thrum of carrion flies. This way, I said, something ought to be dead. Ah, here it is. And there it was, the remains of a huge ceratopsian lying in a little hollow on the edge of the copse. Must have weighed six or eight ton alive, a three-horned variety, perhaps the penultimate species of triceratops. It was hard to tell because most of the hide on the upper surface had been ripped off, and many bones had been pulled loose and lay scattered about. Holzinger said, "'Oh, shucks! Why couldn't I have gotten him before he died? That would have been a darn fine head!' I said, on your toes, chaps. A theropod's been at this carcass and is probably nearby. How do you know, said James, with sweat running off his round red face. He spoke in what was, for him, a low voice, because a nearby theropod is a sobering thought to the flightiest. I sniffed again and thought I could detect the distinctive rank odor of theropod. I couldn't be sure, though, because the carcass stank so strongly. My sahibs were turning green at the sight and smell of the cadaver. I told James... It's seldom that even the biggest theropod will attack a full-grown ceratopsian. Those horns are too much for them. But they love a dead or dying one. They'll hang around a dead ceratopsian for weeks, gorging and then sleeping off their meals for days at a time. They usually take cover in the heat of the day anyhow, because they can't stand much direct hot sunlight. You'll find them lying in copses like this or in hollows, wherever there's shade. "'What'll we do?' asked Holtzinger. We'll make our first cast through this copse in two pairs as usual. Whatever you do, don't get impulsive or panicky. I looked at Courtney James, but he looked right back and merely checked his gun. Should I still carry this broken, he asked. No, close it, but keep the safety on till you're ready to shoot, I said. We'll keep closer than usual, so we shall be in sight of each other. Start off at that angle, Roger. Go slowly and stop to listen between steps. We pushed through the edge of the copse, leaving the carcass, but not its stench, behind us. For a few feet, you couldn't see a thing. It opened out as we got in under the trees, which shaded out some of the brush. The sun slanted down through the trees. I could hear nothing but the hum of insects and the scuttle of lizards and the squawks of toothed birds in the treetops. I thought I could be sure of the therapot smell, but told myself that might be my imagination. The theropod might be any of several species, large or small, and the beast itself might be anywhere within a half-mile's radius. Go on, I whispered to Holtziger, as I could hear James and the Raja pushing ahead on my right, and see the palm fronds and ferns lashing about as they disturbed them. I suppose they were trying to move quietly, but to me they sounded like an earthquake in a crockery shop. A little closer, I called. Presently they appeared slanting in towards me. We dropped into a gully filled with ferns and scrambled up the other side. Then we found our way blocked by a big clump of palmetto. You go round that side, we'll go round this, I said. We started off, stopping to listen and smell. Our positions were the same as on that first day, when James killed the bonehead. 
We'd gotten two-thirds of the way around our half of the palmetto when I heard a noise ahead on our left. Holtzinger heard it too and pushed off his safety. I put my thumb on mine and stepped to one side to have a clear field of fire. The clatter grew louder. I raised my gun to aim about the height of a big theropod's heart. There was a movement in the foliage and a six-foot-high bonehead stepped into view, walking solemnly across our front and jerking its head with each step like a giant pigeon. I heard Holtzinger let out a breath and had to keep myself from laughing. Holtzinger said, Uh, then that damned gun of James's went off. Bang, bang. I had a glimpse of the bonehead knocked arsy-varsy with its tail and hind legs flying. Got him, yelled James. I drilled him clean. I heard him run forward. Good God, if he hasn't done it again, I said. There was a great swishing of foliage and a wild yell from James. Something heaved up out of the shrubbery, and I saw the head of the biggest of the local flesh-eaters. Tyrannosaurus Trionychus himself. The scientists can insist that Rex is the biggest species, but I'll swear this blighter was bigger than any Rex I ever hatched. It must have stood twenty feet high and been fifty feet long. I could see its big bright eye and six-inch teeth and the big dewlap that hangs down from its chin to its chest. The second of the nullers that cut through the copse ran athwart our path on the far side of the palmetto clump. Perhaps it was six feet deep. The Tyrannosaur had been lying in this, sleeping off its last meal. When its back stuck up over the ground level, the ferns on the edge of the nuller had masked it. James had fired both barrels over the theropod's head and woke it up. And the silly ass ran forward without reloading. Another twenty feet and he'd have stepped on the Tyrannosaur. James naturally stopped when the thing popped up in front of him. He remembered he'd fired both barrels and that he'd left the Raja too far behind for a clear shot. At first, James kept his nerve. He broke open his gun, took two rounds from his belt, and plugged them into the barrels. But in his haste to snap the gun shut, he caught his hand between the barrels and the action. The painful pinch so startled James that he dropped his gun. Then he went to pieces and bolted. The Raja was running up with his gun at high port, ready to snap it to his shoulder the instant he got a clear view. When he saw James running headlong towards him, he hesitated, not wishing to shoot James by accident. The latter plunged ahead, blundered into the Raja, and sent them both sprawling among the ferns. The Tyrannosaur collected what little wits it had and stepped forward to snap them up. And how about Holtzinger and me on the other side of the palmettos? Well, the instant James yelled and the Tyrannosaur's head appeared, Holtzinger darted forward like a rabbit. I brought my gun up for a shot at the Tyrannosaur's head in hope of getting at least an eye, but before I could find it in my sights, the head was out of sight behind the palmettos. Perhaps I should have fired at hazard, but all my experience is against wild shots. When I looked back in front of me, Holtzinger had already disappeared around the curve of the palmetto clump. I had started after him when I heard his rifle and the click of the bolt between shots. Bang, click, bang, click, click, like that. He'd come up on the Tyrannosaur's quarter as the brute started to stoop for James and Raja. With his muzzle twenty feet from the Tyrannosaur's hide, Holtzinger began pumping three seventy-fives into the beast's body. He got off three shots when the Tyrannosaur gave a tremendous booming grunt and wheeled round to see what was stinging it. The jaws came open and the head swung round and down again. Holtzinger got off one more shot and tried to leap to one side. As he was standing on a narrow place between the palmetto clump and the nuller, he fell into the nuller. The Tyrannosaur continued its lunge and caught him. 
The jaws went chomp and up came the head with poor Holtzinger in them, screaming like a damned soul. I came up just then and aimed at the brute's face, but then realised that its jaws were full of my sahib, and I should be shooting him too. As the head went on up like the business end of a big power shovel, I fired a shot at the heart. The tyrannosaur was already turning away, and I suspect the ball just glanced along the ribs. The beast took a couple of steps when I gave it the other barrel in the jack. It staggered on its next step, but kept on. Another step, and it was nearly out of sight among the trees, when the Raja fired twice. Stout fellow had untangled himself from James, got up, picked up his gun, and let the tyrannosaur have it. The double wallop knocked the brute over with a tremendous crash. It fell into a dwarf magnolia, and I saw one of its huge bird-like hind legs waving in the midst of a shower of pink and white petals. But the tyrannosaur got up again and blundered off without even dropping its victim. The last I saw of it was Holtzinger's legs dangling out of one side of its jaws. He'd stopped screaming, and its big tail banging against the tree trunks as it swung from side to side. The Raja and I reloaded and ran after the brute for all we were worth. I tripped and fell once, but jumped up again, and didn't notice my skinned elbow till later. When we burst out of the copse, Tyrannosaur was already at the far end of the glade. We each took a quick shot, but probably missed. It was out of sight before we could fire again. We ran on, following the tracks and spatters of blood, until we had to stop from exhaustion. Never again did we see that Tyrannosaur. Their movements look slow and ponderous, but with those tremendous legs, they don't have to step very fast to work up considerable speed. (sighs) When we'd got our breath, we got up and tried to track the Tyrannosaur, on the theory that it might be dying and we should come up to it. But though we found more spore, it faded out and left us at a loss. We circled round, hoping to pick it up, but no luck. Hours later, we gave up and went back to the glade. Courtney James was sitting with his back against a tree, holding his rifle and Holtzinger's. His right hand was swollen and blue where he'd pinched it, but still usable. His first words were, Where the hell have you two been? I said, We've been occupied. The late Mr. Holtzinger, remember? You shouldn't have gone off and let me. Another one of those things might have come along. Isn't it bad enough to lose one hunter through your stupidity without risking another one? I began preparing a warm wigging for James, but his attack so astonished me that I could only bleep what we lost? Sure, he said. You put us in front of you, so if anybody gets eaten, it's us. You send a guy up against these animals undergunned. You, you goddamn stinking little swine, I said. If you hadn't been a blithering idiot and blown those two barrels and then run like the yellow coward you are, this never would have happened. Holtzinger died trying to save your worthless life. By God, I wish he'd failed. He was worth six of a stupid, spoiled, muttered-headed bastard like you. Went on from there. The Raja tried to keep up with me, but ran out of English and was reduced to cursing James in Hindustani. I could see by the purple colour on James's face that I was getting home. He said, why you, and stepped forward and sloshed me one in the face with his left fist. It rocked me a bit, but I said, now then, my lad, I'm glad you did that. It gives me a chance I've been waiting for. So I waded into him. He was a good-sized boy, but between my sixteen stone and his sore right hand, he had no chance. I got a few good ones home, and down he went. Get up, I said, and I'll be glad to finish off. James raised himself to his elbows. I got set for more fisticuffs, though my knuckles were skinned and bleeding already. James rolled over, snatched his gun, and scrambled up, swinging the muzzle from one to the other of us. "'You won't finish anybody off,' he panted through swollen lips. 
All right, put your hands up, both of you. Don't be an idiot, said Roger. Put the gun away. Nobody treats me like that and gets away with it. It's no use murdering us, I said. You'd never get away with it. Why not? There won't be much left of you after one of these hits you. I'll just say the Tyrannosaur ate you too. Nobody could prove anything. They can't hold you for a murder 85 million years old. A statute of limitations, you know. You fool, you'll never make it back to the camp alive, I shouted. I'll take a chance, began James, setting the butt of his 500 against his shoulder, with the barrels pointed at my face. Looked like a pair of bleeding vehicular tunnels. He was watching me so closely that he lost track of Roger for a second. My partner had been resting on one knee, and now his right arm came up in a quick bowling motion with a three-pound rock. The rock bounced off James's head, and the 500 went off. The ball must have parted my hair, and the explosion Johnny well near broke my eardrums. Down went James again. Good work, old chap, I said, gathering up James's gun. Yes, said the Roger thoughtfully, as he picked up the rock he'd thrown and tossed it. It didn't quite have the balance of a cricket ball, but it's just as hard. What should we do now, I said. I'm inclined to leave the beggar here unarmed and let him fend for himself. The Roger gave a little sigh. It's a tempting thought, Reggie, but we really cannot, you know. Not done. I suppose you're right, I said. Well, let's tie him up and take him back to camp. We agreed there was no safety for us unless we kept James under guard every minute until we got home. Once a man has tried to kill you, you're a fool if you give him another chance. We marched James back to camp and told the crew what we were up against. James cursed everybody. We spent three dismal days combing the country for that Tyrannosaur, but no luck. We felt it would have been cricket not to make a good try at recovering Holtzinger's remains. Back at our main camp, when it wasn't raining, we collected small reptiles and things for our scientific friends. The Raja and I discussed the question of legal proceedings against Courtney James, but decided there was nothing we could do in that direction. When the transition chamber materialized, we fell over one another getting into it. We dumped James, still tied, in a corner, and told the chamber operator to throw the switches. While we were in transition, James said, You two should have killed me back there. Why? I said. You don't have a particularly good head. The Raja added, Wouldn't look at all well over a mantle. You can laugh, said James, but I'll get you some day. I'll find a way to get off scot-free. My dear chap, I said, if there was some way to do it, I'd have charged you with Holzinger's death. Look, you'd best leave well enough alone. When we came out in the present, we handed him his empty gun and his other gear. And off we went without a word. As he left, Holzinger's girl, that Claire, rushed up crying. Where is he? Where's August? There was a bloody heart-rending scene, despite the Roger's skill at handling such situations. We took our men and beasts down to the old laboratory building that the university has fitted up as a serai for such expeditions. We paid everybody off and found we were broke. The advance payments from Holtzinger and James didn't cover our expenses, and we should have precious little chance of collecting the rest of our fees either from James or from Holtzinger's estate. And speaking of James, you know what the blighter was doing? He went home, got more ammunition, and came back to the university. He hunted up Professor Prohaska and asked him, Professor, I'd like you to send me back to the Cretaceous for a quick trip. If you can work me into your schedule right now, you can just about name your own price. I'll offer you 5000 to begin with, and I want to go to April 23rd, 85 million BC. Prohaska answered, Why do you wish to go back so soon? 
I lost my wallet in the Cretaceous, said James. I figure if I go back the day before I arrived in that era on my last trip, I'll watch myself when I arrived on that trip and follow myself around till I see myself lose the wallet. Five thousand is a lot for a wallet, said the professor. It's got some things in it I can't replace, said James. Well, said Prohaska, thinking, the party that was supposed to go out this morning has telephoned that they would be late, so perhaps I can work you in. I've always wondered what would happen when the same man occupied the same stretch of time twice. So James wrote out a check, and Prohaska took him to the chamber and saw him off. James's idea, it seems, was to sit behind a bush a few yards from where the transition chamber would appear and pot the Raja and me as we emerged. Hours later, we changed into our street clothes and found our wives to come and get us. We were standing on Forsyth Boulevard waiting for them when there was a loud crack, like an explosion, and a flash of light not fifty feet from us. The shockwave staggered us and broke windows. We ran toward the place and got there just as a bobby and several citizens came up. On the boulevard, just off the curb, lay a human body. At least it had been that, but it looked as if every bone in it had been pulverized and every blood vessel burst, so it was hardly more than the slimy mass of pink protoplasm. The clothes it had been wearing were shredded by a recognized an Agent H-500 double-barreled express rifle. The wood was scorched and the metal pitted, but it was Courtney James's gun. No doubt, whatever. Skipping the investigation and the milling about that ensued, what had happened was this. Nobody had shot at us as we emerged on the 24th, and that couldn't be changed. For that matter, the instant James started to do anything that would make a visible change in the world of 8-5 million B.C., such as making a footprint in the Earth, the space-time forces snapped him forward to the present to prevent a paradox, and the violence of the passage practically tore him to bits. Now that this is better understood, the professor won't send anybody to a period less than 5,000 years prior to the time that some time traveller has already explored, because it would be too easy to do some act like chopping down a tree or losing some durable artefact that would affect the later world. Over longer periods, he tells me, such changes average out and are lost in the stream of time. We had a rough time after that, with the bad publicity and all, though we did collect a fee from James's estate. Luckily for us, a steel manufacturer turned up who wanted a mastodon's head for his den. I understand these things better now, too. The disaster had been wholly James's fault. I shouldn't have taken him when I knew what a spoiled, unstable sort of bloke he was, and if Holtzinger could have used a really heavy gun, he'd probably have knocked the Tyrannosaur down, even if he didn't kill it and it would have given the rest of us a chance to finish it. So, Mr. Seligman, that's why I won't take you to that period to hunt. There are plenty of other eras, and if you look them over, I'm sure you'll find something to suit you. But not the Jurassic or the Cretaceous. You're just not big enough to handle a gun for dinosaur. They keep the time machines under the Natural History Museum. I know, it seems weird, right? But here's the thing. According to what the scientific advisor said, the time machines are actually part of the natural order. Not alive. At least not all of them. At least, apart from the one he uses, but a part of time itself. The way he explained it to me was every time machine built is another door unlocked to rooms and corridors that were already there built into time itself and that we haven't had access to until that precise moment. Spending time down here, you start to believe him too. 
directly above our heads right now is the marine hall, the one with the full-size whale model and all that other good stuff. I love coming here. It always defaults me back to childhood. You know, that period where everything is big and wide and smart and old and so much cleverer than you could ever hope to be. It's reassuring, this weight of knowledge contained in solid, crystallized time. Because after all, what are buildings this age other than crystallized time? Thousands of man-hours trapped in amber, solidified and sculpted and combined and designed to contain wonders. A room full of doors, certainly, but every time, and there's that word again, every time a machine arrives here, it never leaves again. Stuffed animals, wooden sculptures, time, crystallized. It used to depress me coming down here, because he's gone, because in the end they all go. Because when it comes down to it, a time machine, especially if it's a door to an established corridor, needs someone to step through it. And all of these? Well, let's just say the door may be unlocked, but you still need to reach the handle. All of them. The brass sleds, the steam train over there. We have the Christmas party in the first-class carriage, by the way. The living room. A living room, for God's sake. How utterly British. The double-decker bus. The police box. All of them respond to one person. Just one. And we are never them. Well, I say never. Technically, DeCamp's story's fiction, and technically the time machine that it's fiction about is American and should be in the Smithsonian Hall, but when was the last time something like nationality and ownership got in the way for us? Have you seen the Elgin Marbles? Their original owners haven't for a while. So yes, we have DeCamp's time machine, and make no mistake, it's his. Yeah, the trapdoor spiders, they had friends. And those friends had money, time, and boredom. Combine that with the work and contacts DeCamp did at the Philadelphia Naval Yard and the Elkridge incident, and let's just say truth is sometimes stranger than fiction, and there's a reason why we've escaped every single cut in this age of austerity. Now if you'll excuse me, I need to go fire the old girl up. The PM's booked a trip to the Cretaceous. Of course, none of that's true. Or is it? What is true is Nathan, and his existence, and his presence here to discuss the feedback. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 393, Red Card, by S.L. Gilbo. This was the story of a hypothetical, let's call it a solution for argument's sake, to the problem of crime, misbehavior, and general boorishness in which random citizens are issued a gun and a license to, just once, kill the person of their choice with no repercussions or penalties, legal, social, or otherwise. Peeps mostly dug this one, with a few naysayers complaining that the main character's depressing life was too accurately drawn to be enjoyable, and a couple of people complaining that it was too literary. What? But with the majority of response being both positive and thoughtful, and polite! Yes, a discussion about guns and violence on an English-language forum, and not one person called a Nazi. Baker8680 said, I thought the story was well-written and seemed to have the right amount of dull. What I found interesting was not the, the meta of empire and violence on a national scale, but the implication the author seemed to make on things like stand-your-ground laws and the gun culture that permeates America. I found it interesting that the author only covered the initial act in that day so that it left us to have the conversation without the author getting embroiled in the argument. I like the story a lot. I also think the idea that she didn't seem to have a reason to shoot and that they expected the enforcers to snap was a direct relation to how petty most of our grievances are with each other. 
Maybe part of the problem the author is trying to bring out is that our real problem is the distance between us and others and how we bridge that gap. It gave me a lot to think about. Later, CryptoMe had a concern about a particular scene in the story, one which inspired a lot of discussion and interpretation, actually. I have a detail problem. If Linda has a second red card, why does she need the cleaning product? We're told the government takes care of the cleanup, and when Linda gets home, she even remarks on what a good job they did with the husband's mess. So if that's the case, why does she need the cleaning? If anyone can help with this, I'd be greatly appreciated. Max responded, quote from Lady Macbeth, Ouch, damned spot! Out, I say! Well, like the lady says, that's all we have for this week. Join us next week when we go through the comments for episode 394 with a license to kill. See you then! We rely on you to keep our secret hall of defunct time machines powered, so for the sake of all history, if you liked this story, please go to escapepod.org and click donate. Each cent we receive helps pay server costs and authors and generally makes the place tick over like a particularly happy Type 40. Escape Pod is a product of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Escape Pod will return next week with Subversion by Elizabeth Adams. The closing quote this week is, What else? From Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder. Time was a film run backward. Suns fled and ten million moons fled after them. We'll see you next time. Until then, have fun. Hi, this is Matt. I just wanted to tag this little producer's note onto the end. Um, this was kind of a special story for us, a little longer than uh, we normally deal with, and a little more classic. I mean, this is, you know, some some pretty classic sci-fi. Um, because of that, I wanted to try and court sort of a special narrator for this one. And uh, I ended up uh, deciding on Ayub because of his work with 3015 North Studios on the uh, audio drama HG World, uh, where he plays McKinnis, who is a, a, a military leader in a post-apocalyptic uh, scenario. Uh, it, it's a zombie story, sort of, but... Um, well, you know what? It's really worth listening to, and they just started working on remastering the first season, so it's a good time to, to get your feet wet with it. And uh, I've included here at the end one of my favorite monologues of his, and uh, to set the scene for you a little bit, um, one of the reasons HG World is so special to me is because it takes place in Pennsylvania, and this particular scene takes place in Pittsburgh, uh, which is where I was living when I graduated high school many years ago. Um and uh, so I know all the places that they're talking about uh, in amidst this just amazing monologue. Uh, the the writing is is beautiful. The execution is perfect. It's one of those rare moments in podcasting where everything kind of comes together. You know, there again, even within this clip, there are some strengths and weaknesses. But I don't think you'll find any of the weaknesses within the uh, the monologue itself and its delivery. So. Check this out, and if you're interested, search HG World online. It's easy to find through iTunes or directly online or anything like that. So um, I think the official website is goodmorningsurvivors.com, uh, but there's also, you know, you can find them on Podbean and elsewhere. Um, one last thing. I should warn you that this clip is uh, explicit. Uh, it's not meant for the young or the faint of heart. So uh, while I do adore it, uh, I do have to say that if you're uh, – not interested in that material that this is one that you need to skip. Um, but for those who, uh, can stomach it, I, 
I just love it. So check uh, check out Ayub online. Check out uh, HD World online. And um, thank you. Chocolate and peanut butter from Mr. Grant. Independently, their existence is proof that God exists. Put them together, and it's proof that God loves sex. How so, Mr. McGuinness? Look around us. The world is falling down, but the sky is gorgeous. It's a comfortable 68 degrees, and I'm sitting on one of the most destructive machines in the world, preparing to shoot its main weapon at a multi-billion dollar skyscraper. I apologize that I don't see the connection. And I've got the most incredible confection ever conceived, in the shape of a wee rabbit for Easter, no less. Look at it, Mr. Grant. Alone, chocolate or peanut butter are great. But wrapping one in the other? Oh, brilliant. It's like two hot lovers intertwined, melting together on a bed of taste buds, erupting inside my mouth with the passion of forbidden love reconciled. Would you like one? No, thank you. I prefer to be bland and unassuming. You are that indeed. If they named a sweet after you, it might be called Willy Wanker's Stoic Nibbles. I won't argue that, Mr. McGinnis. Are we ready to shoot? Ah, impatience. There is fire in your belly. No, I'm just looking forward to what will inevitably be an excellent and insightful sexual metaphor. Are we ready yet, Mr. Helms? Aye, Captain. Locked and loaded. How are you feeling, Mr. Grant? Fine and frosty, Mr. McGinnis. Why? I mean, here you are in an international group of soldiers, the diabolical United Nations Security Forces on American soil. You're my second in command, and I'm about to blow up one of the largest buildings in one of your major cities. Does that not set you back a bit? Seeing that the building is full of gasoline, explosives, and about 5,000 diseased cannibals, I'm very much at peace with the idea, sir. The last transport is away, sir. It's headed back to base. The building has been cleared for demolition. Roger that, Corporal. Well done. So this, as I said, is proof of a loving and wonderful god. Peanut butter cups, high explosives, big guns, and good scotch whiskey. Pardon me a moment. What a lovely view of the city. What's the name of this place again? Duquesne. Alright, my lovelies. If it comes down in three shots or less, everyone's getting weenies and chips for dinner. No pressure, Corporal. Good hit. Where'd you think it hit, Mr. Grant? I'd say in the mid-forties somewhere. Aye, right. Your turn. Ear protection, Mr. Grant. Ready when you are.
Fantastic. What was the name of that building, I wonder? In life, it was called the UNC Bank Building. Well, now it's rubbish. Oh dear, that's going to burn all spring, that is. Did you see? It took out four other buildings. Good shooting, men. So, what say we have dinner brought up and we can watch the city burn over hamsteaks and beer? I'll make it so. Incidentally, has there been any further contact from that civilian helicopter that radioed us yesterday? Now that you mention it, we haven't heard from the recon squad we sent out to the relocation point in Monroeville. Sergeant Fox. Yeah, you with the droopy face. Go ask the communications officer to check into our recon patrols and make sure they're all accounted for. It's nice to find living people to rescue. Shame they're journalists. I'm sure there are good people on the inside, sir. Ah, look at it burn, Mr. Grant. The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman. Men in tights, men without hearts, and every free man hid themselves in the tents and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? See, Americans can't pull that off. You need a good English barrister voice. Or the right brogue of a Scot to make it sound a proper menace. To properly convey the fear one might have of a lamb, any lamb, requires a man with historical and personal knowledge of all things sheeply. Are you following me, Mr. Grant? Not so much, really. I was messaging the menu to the mess there. Shall I have him raid the liquor warehouse for the men? Aye. How often does one get to legally burn a city to the ground? Have them all come up to the ridge and let's watch it in the sunset. Very good, sir. I'll order the men to begin raping and pillaging. Aye. We're not savages. Keep it to a mild pillaging. Of course, sir. Captain McGinnis. Yes, Corporal? HQ Toronto just went automatic. Their comm center shut down and went to recordings. Just like Victoria. Windsor is still live, for now. Any explanation from these blokes? They're being ordered back to Quebec, sir. Are they now? All 20,000 of them? Best estimates now is more like five. Bloody hell. All units that can make it back to Montreal are ordered to do so. Everyone else is ordered to hold out until they come up with a new plan. That's great. Shall I fetch Captain Grant, sir? No, don't tell the men yet. Let's enjoy this victory for a moment, shall we? Aye, sir. I have a feeling it'll be our last feel-good moment for a while. Thank you.